welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 262. Our guest on this episode is Paul Lewis, the founder and lead designer over at FHF Gear. Many of you might be familiar with FHF because of their bino harnesses, which are a very popular product in the hunting market. We talk about Paul and his background on the tactical and SWAT law enforcement side and how he started making gear on the side in his garage and essentially it blew up into what we now know as FHF gear almost unintentionally. But we not only spend time talking about FHF and the background and the story and their products, we dive into a very special hunt, a sheep tag that Paul had this fall in his home state of Montana and pull some lessons and stories out of that hunt and his experience. This is a super fun episode to get kind of some background on the industry and products that you might be familiar with, and also just to hear a good old story about a very, very cool adventurous hunt. So thank you for tuning in. If you're new to the podcast, we appreciate you checking it out. Be sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already, and you can learn more about the show at exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. If you've been tuning in and enjoying the show, we thank you for the support. If you could leave us a review, share this episode with a friend, or just contact us with your questions, comments, or feedback to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'd appreciate hearing from you. All right, let's get right into this conversation with Paul Lewis from FHF Gear. Paul, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. Glad to have you joining today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's gonna be fun to chat. We got some hunting stories to tell, and uh, you had a heck of a fall this year, which we want to definitely make our way to and hear some stories about for sure. Uh, but to start with some background context for guys who might not be aware, maybe not heard your name. I'm sure probably have amongst our audience heard of FHF Gear, uh, which you founded and are the lead designer for. So. Um, kick things off just a little bit like personal background, maybe prior to FHF. Um, I know you have some law enforcement background professionally, um, but begin to give us some context for who you are and then maybe what kind of led to FHF starting really. Um, yeah, it's hard to, uh, hard to remember sometimes going back. Seems like a different life. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, like you said, I, I was in law enforcement. I, I worked 20 years for our sheriff's office here in the Bozeman area. And probably about 10 years in, I started, um, started making gear for myself and teammates and just kind of a, almost like a hobby, you know, filling, filling a need and just, uh, that, you know, led to one thing led to another and, and things kind of word of mouth took off on me. And, and really I was just charging enough to kind of pay for the hobby and pay for new material. And, and it, it led to a lot of custom work that I really never expected people, you know, spread my name around on the, some forums and different things. And, um, yeah, it went on for a couple of years, really just focused on custom gear. And, um, at one point, you know, realized I was 18 months behind in orders and, whoa, and, you know, watching my kids grow up while I spent my time in the basement sewing, um, you know, because I was working a, a full-time job plus a lot of collaterals. I was on our SWAT team and 
training coordinator and eventually team leader of that team and, you know, multiple other, you know, job collateral duties at the sheriff's office. Um, you know, over time I was in charge of our investigative detective division towards the, by the last eight to 10 years of my career and call outs and pages and, you know, working 70, 80 hours a week at the day job, most of the time, plus doing this on the side, um, really led me to shut down the custom orders and focus on those things that I was spending my time building. Um, and, you know, limiting colors. That used to be the the big thing is, you know, somebody would order a bino harness and one color with a specific thread color and different webbing on us. You know, I was doing complete custom work. Yeah. And it just, you know, you try and group those orders into, you know, I have four pending orders for black harnesses. I'll cut all those at one time, but, um, you know, still is not the most efficient use of your time. So, um, cut all those off at one point and finally decided to focus on a few colors at a, at a production company. And really it's been a lot of learning since then trying to, um, teach myself this industry. Um, you know, I've talked to a couple of people in the industry over the years, you know, I know Steve and I met up at uh, shot show, I think. Yeah. When I, I picked Steve, I picked your brain about how do you ship all this stuff? How do you, you know, what, how are, you know they don't teach a lot of uh, business tips at the law enforcement academy. So, uh, <laughs> you know, my background before that, I have a wildlife biology degree. So again, not a whole lot of business background. And really it's been learning by making mistakes and trying to pick the brains of people who've been there before. Um, and you know, ended up just in a place that I really never expected to. I, I always thought, you know, I've got at one point, I remember thinking I have eight years till I can retire. So I'll just kind of coast this business and not advertise and purposely not grow and, mm-hmm. you know, finish out my retirement and then I'll have something to do when I retire. And, you know, I say retire, but I was only 42 when I re- retired from the sheriff's office and they don't, exactly pay enough in retirement to actually retire. So, uh, it's the new job and, um, was able to do that in 2018 and, you know, go full time. And quite honestly, I, I retired opening day of elk season. I took a month off and hunted and then, um, rolled right back into this. And I'd say have found myself busier than ever just doing mm-hmm. this whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those, those early products you were building, the custom stuff, I mean, you mentioned bino harnesses in there, which is probably what most of our listeners and what I what I think of in terms of product when I think of FHF gear originally. On the law enforcement side, were you building like, you know, web gear for radios, pouches for vests? Like what did the early stuff look like that you were doing that was custom besides bino harnesses? Yeah, I'd say honestly, the majority of it was tactical. Um, you know, I got game in one of the tactical forums and was building you know stuff for everything from pop flare pouches grenade pouches ammo pouches you know really tactically um centered for the most part you know and being in bozeman you get the occasional order for hunting gear and that was one of the products that kind of took off first was that prior to me building one there was no bear spray holster that attached to a molly equipped pack and again, being in Bozeman with um, some of the pack companies here, there was 
you know, my hunting buddies were all had Molly equipped waist belts on Mr. Mm -hmm. Ranch packs. And, um, you know, everybody was just zip tying their bear spray to the side and, um, started building holsters that would attach. And that was one of the first products. I think probably the first product I put into, into a production company, um, which is a story in and of itself. I remember finding a company at shot show that would do a small run production. Cause you know, I'm taking my, all of my extra money from my sheriff's office income, which isn't real, uh, significant. Um, and you know, trying to fund a production run. And I think I remember ordering like three or $400 worth of bear spray holsters and being sick to my stomach thinking there's no way <laughs> sell that much. Yeah. You know, what if I don't get that $300 back? Um, and yeah, but it, it, again, it was kind of mostly tactically oriented. Once we came out, it was actually a custom order for a bino harness, um, who, uh, by a guy named Phil, who actually just started working here, um, part-time for now or, or temporarily for now. But, um, he, he made this custom ordered bino harness and it, um, after multiple iterations and kind of testing over a couple seasons um kind of ended up pretty close to where it is now and um you know he came in specifically with a request to build a non-magnetic harness he didn't want the popping and the the sound potential for a magnet closing he previously owned another brand that you know the early badlands mm -hmm. um and had something pop shut on him once and scare something. So he's like, oh, I just need something without a magnet. And so that's where we came up with this closure system we have now. Hmm. Uh, and you know, early, early days, there weren't a whole lot of other harnesses out there. Um, and we wanted to just make it super minimal and, but still be modular so you can add stuff if you wanted to, but we just wanted to keep it light and fast and, and as simple as possible. And again, early days, you know, I'm sewing in a spare bedroom and using equipment that I had on hand and, or could make work out of my garage. And, um, it, uh, know, it was an interesting process that, you know, led to again, word of mouth in Bozeman. I often say I was right time, right place. I think Phil and I went to a season premiere party with Randy Newberg um, at a local watering hole here and came away from that party with like an order for 24 different from 24 different people for harnesses because mm. he had the one I built him in the truck and showed it off. And, <laughs> um, you know, that I think Phil and I sat there for a full weekend and built harnesses and, and just, again, one thing led to another and, um, it, you know, took off on me a little faster than I had, had planned on. I got busier there, you know, I was still doing a lot of tactical stuff. Um, but it really started to focus on hunting after that. Yeah. And, you know, got into some of the online forums, um, in the hunting world and, and it just shifted the, the focus that direction. That is neat. It's always fun to hear those backstories and, you know, essentially a similar story to you, Steve, of a sewing machine in a garage, an idea. And then you look back a handful of years later and you're like, oh, well, that 
<laughs> that, that kind of went a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny because it's from the outside. I'm sure Paul from the you feel the same. Like you're inside of it. It's just a complete and utter, you know, basically shit show. Uh, <laughs> but from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, that company's got their stuff together. They're running smoothly, and it's always uh, there's always way more going on behind the scenes than people ever realize. Yeah, yeah it's it's really funny, and that you know, I've had. You become, I don't know, I, I became completely humbled when people would call up and ask, you know, to talk to my marketing department. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hello. Uh, um, you know, it was just me. There was nobody else. You know, I didn't have a partner or anything. And, and so, that you know, everything up until probably five years, four years ago, um, when Jen came on, was just me. And, um, you know, everything from really poor bookkeeping to really poor marketing. Um, and you know, it's certainly come a long way and, and, you know, you'd have people Bozeman is interesting with all the outdoor industries here. You know, you'll have people come through and they make the, the, the hardcore guys will make stops at every, every shop in town, you know, they want to just stop and it's almost like tourist destination for hunters, you know, and, mm. You know, uh, I'm touring Kennetrek boots. I'm stopping at Schnee's. I'm running, you know, I'm going to look in at all the pack companies and I want to stop the Wild Sheep Foundation and Sims. And, you know, they just want to see everything. And they'd call up and, you know, the only phone number I had was my cell phone. And they would call up and say, hey, we want to stop and see FHF headquarters. And they'd be like, well, I, I don't know what you think you're going to see, but I can move my... <laughs> kids bikes out of the driveway if you <laughs> um, and uh so yeah it was humbling to think like you said from the outside looking in people thought that we were a big company when in reality it was uh me doing my best to to uh, you know make things work but yeah that's cool though <laughs> yeah it's kind of like that now if somebody calls an exo and you're like can i speak to sales it's like to pull the phone away from your face and then just come back hello <laughs> marketing yes <laughs> it's all it's all one it's all the same it's got to feel good the day i was thinking of both you steve and paul the day that you can pull your cell phone number off as the main business line has to be such a good feeling yeah uh, <laughs> i we didn't actually purposely publish it but it was on every sales receipt um mm. and people would find it i think people would share it but yeah. you know Again, being most of my career with the sheriff's office, I wasn't, <clears throat> I was kind of uh, obligated to always have my cell phone on. So, you know, two in the morning, if somebody called it, it would ring and I would answer. So, yeah, as of, we didn't open our actual shop and get a real number until oh, probably a year and a half ago now. Um, prior to that, it, it was the cell phone. Yeah. When did the bino harness go like full production? Like you, when did you stop building customs and one-offs and just basically make it a product? Cause again, that's just the product I have most experience with. And I feel like it's been, I want to say four to five years, but I could be totally wrong on that. Yeah. I think actually my first production run of that was probably, I'd have to look back 2000, 10 or 11. Okay. Um, so it's been a while. I started sewing really, um, 2000, late 2008, 2009. Um, 
And then, you know, like I said, after a couple of years of custom orders, I realized that was all I was doing was bino harnesses for the most part and did the production runs of those, the first ones, you know, and again, the first runs were probably 50 of each size. And again, it's like one of those just scary moments for like, how much money is that going to cost me? And mm-hmm. I hope this continues, you know, that people will buy a standardized version in a standardized color or two. Um, I think I only did multi-cam in the first run and just was trying to meet sewing company minimums. And, but yeah, it's probably, I'd say 2010 is probably when I did those first small runs. And, and again, I purposely didn't advertise. I, we were growing so fast and selling out of everything so quickly. And I was afraid, afraid of the growth um, with as busy as we were. And I say we, as busy as I was at the time, um, you know, I was just hesitant to, to really try and blow it up, um, knowing that, you know, I was close enough to retirement that it wasn't worth giving up my retirement. Um, right. And I wanted to finish out and I enjoyed my job. I, you know, certainly liked where I worked and wasn't like I was looking to get out. Um, and so it was, you know, just an interesting process to try and temper the growth as best I could. And in some cases that I probably didn't do a very good job of doing that, but, <laughs> um, you know, Ranella and Newberg and Matzinger, those guys all wearing the harness out there to begin with. Um, certainly put, put me on, helped put me on the map, I think. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Did you, it, man, it sounds like you're so busy, as you said, with your law enforcement work being full time. Now, FHF gear is blowing up. You said you got, you know, family, wife and kids. Like, I can't imagine juggling all that and trying to like get out and hunt. Um, what was that like for you? Like balancing work, family, hunting? Did you even like through that time, those period of years, did you even make it out to hunt much? Or was that just not it was a passion, but not super practical at that point. Yeah, it was tough. I went, I did okay early on. Actually, it's, I went through a divorce in the middle of it and remarried now and got myself a couple extra kids on top of it. Um, and the, I'd say that the toughest time to get outside was during, during the time, you know, after a divorce and before I, remarried where you know the only time I had my kids and were on my weekends mm-hmm. uh, and so you know it was tough to get outside for sure um, and I think I went two years probably where I really didn't hardly get out at all um, you know I could do small deer hunts with small kids and stuff but chasing elk in the mountains was kind of out of the question yeah um, and so yeah it was tough early on you know that was uh, you know, interesting with things going on at home and, and dealing with kids. And, um, but I would, I would take the time, you know, to, to get out where I could. And then, you know, like I said, a couple of years of really having a hard time getting out. And then now things have settled back down where I can get out and the kids are a little older. They can come with me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my stepdaughter, you know, if, if I'm going hunting, there's no way she wants to, uh, let me go without her. So, you know, that's, that's awesome. Been, you know, yeah. It's been great having, having that. She's a shed hunting fanatic too. So, uh, get out in the hills and, um, yeah, it's been, been really good. Um, and now, you know, we're at a point where we've, we've got a couple extra hands on deck that can help me do that. And, you know, this year with the special tag has been interesting in that I can, um, you know, Rick, I don't know if you guys know Rick, but, um, he's our kind of, for a while was our do everything guy. And I was focused on marketing, but, you know, a fantastic photographer and hunting buddy. And, you know, he's able to come with me and document the whole hunt. And, you know, it's like having your own personal photographer, um, along on, on a hunting trip, which I don't necessarily, um, relish in the fact, you know, being on, on camera, but it was fun to have that and be able to look back, you know, have those photos now and, and yeah. be able to look back and remember it. For sure. How was the, your law enforcement background? How did that influence or connect with your hunting at all? Or did you kind of keep those as like a separate, like a hunting was a, an escape from your work. Right. I, I think of guys like Joel Turner, you know, who's has law enforcement SWAT shooting experience on the tactical side. And for him, he like makes connections obviously on shooting and how his law enforcement professional background is going to help him as a shooter in hunting situations. Um, for you, or did you make many connections there that you're like, Oh yeah, my experience, my training helps me as a hunter, or is that not something that, you know, you kept it more separate, I guess. Some, I, I certainly used it as an escape to get, yeah, like you said, away from the stress and the politics and the BS of the job, but, um, you know, just love being outside, but, um, really it's funny cause I joined the SWAT team, um, not with the expectation that, you know, that ended up being reality. Um, but I'd say more than anything, it was the gear that kind of helped connect the two for me, you know, where I I'd look at something that would be, you know, for instance, you know, we'd swap out our different kit depending on the mission and what we were doing, you know, some sort of warrant service versus a barricaded suspect, you know, where you're standing around for 10 hours. I like to have different equipment, um, you know, for a different mission. And for me, you know, the hunting side of things, uh, both hunting and just being outside, you know, I'm able to, I wanted to be able to swap my kit around, you know, if I was shed hunting versus archery hunting versus rifle hunting. And, you know, there was certain equipment that I needed or wanted handy or was more appropriate to have, have in certain places, depending on what I was doing. So for me, that was probably the biggest, um, parallel between the two in that oftentimes I would actually build it with the idea that I would use it in, in both scenarios. You know, I could use it hmm. while on a call and use it, um, hunting and early on, um, I don't know if you realize that cops don't make a whole lot of money. So for me, it was, you know, saving yeah, if I could use something in, in both scenarios, I, w- I wouldn't have to buy it twice. And yeah. 
it moved from my call out bag to to my hunting bag and in, in the which caused some some uh, frantic searching sometimes in the middle of the night during hunting season but it uh <laughs> um you know it was a way to kind of I don't, I don't know, economize my dollars and, and use stuff in both scenarios. Um, yeah. What are some examples of that? Like the, the gear, how it was set up that crossed over between hunting and your work as a professional law enforcement officer? Well, one of the things, you know, is that hand warmer we came out with, um, you know, we, in the winter here in Montana, you know, like I said, if you're standing around for 10 hours waiting for a negotiator to talk somebody out of a house, um, you want to have your fingers nimble and be able to use your, your gun if you need it. But at the same time, um, you, you want to try and keep, keep your hands warm. So big ski gloves didn't, didn't seem appropriate. Um, same thing as a whitetail hunter or anything else, you know, the same reason hand muffs, but you know, I, I couldn't understand why you couldn't go buy a, a hand muff like the football players wore. Um, or like you'd see in a tree stand um, that would attach to my tactical vest and still work the same way and match the uniforms. I didn't get in trouble for wearing mossy oak on, on a call out um, mm -hmm. and being a uniform. Um, and, you know, the military guys saw the use in that too. And, you know, since then there's been a whole lot of other companies that have come out with the same thing, but um, that was probably one of the early ones that was an obvious um, swap back and forth. Um, you know, we've made this, made a phone pouch um relatively recently that um especially in the latter career of the SWAT team you know we were using our smartphones more and more for um sending waypoints to each other on rural callouts and sending pictures back to incident command and having an easy access to your phone was an obvious parallel to being in the woods and checking on x and mm -hmm. um and doing all of that stuff. So, you know, those are kind of some of the obvious examples, but you know, everything from, again, uh, you know, we'd have rural call outs and man hunts. We did a big man hunt in Yellowstone park, uh, looking for some fugitives one time. And, you know, they're trying to hand us out bear spray that everybody's throwing in cargo pockets. And, um, cause they didn't want us shooting grizzlies if we had to, um, and, you know, it's not something you think about carrying bear spray on a tactical operation, but working in this part of the country, it's certainly something we started doing. Um, and, um, you know, having the ability to attach that to a tack vest or a load bearing system, as well as onto your hunting pack, seemed like a pretty obvious parallel there. That's cool. I wouldn't think of that stuff as uh, used in scenario in law enforcement, but I think your context of law enforcement, both with SWAT specifically, but then being in Montana, like introduced some of that, that creates more crossover than a guy's going to have in Florida. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Although with the crazies occasionally around there, I suppose, I suppose the, uh, having bear too. <laughs> <laughs> multi-purpose again man <laughs> so let's dig into hunting a bit more you said uh in passing you had a special tag um it's a hunt that i followed this fall and i'm excited to hear more about but uh kick things off what was it like what was uh this tag that you drew and tell us kind of the even you know for listeners who don't there's always questions on like states and processes and tags and applications and points and whatever. So like, give us the background of 
even acquiring this tag and what that looked like for you? So, yeah, I drew a Montana bighorn sheep tag this year. Um, I've been putting in for sheep uh, probably since, oh, I don't even know. Um, probably around 2000. Um, I didn't grow up hunting. I, I learned it from some of my coworkers early on in the sheriff's office, as well as some college roommates, you know, um, but the way Montana does it, if, if you put in for a year and don't draw, then you get a preference point. So the following year you get, um, extra chances basically in the drawing and early on it was just a single point so you know if you put in for for five years and didn't draw then that sixth year you had six names in the hat um, when they would draw for those tags Um, they've since changed that so they square it and it's it's an exponential uh, increase in odds in montana as you go longer and longer um, Mm -hmm. and, and don't and aren't successful um and the sheep tag I put in for it's funny because, you know, there's certainly units in Montana that are known for, you know, the potential for a world record sheep and you know, big trophy units. And I've never been a trophy hunter, um, but I wanted to put in for a unit that was a mountain unit that wasn't, you know, a plains type hunt. Um, I wanted a high mountain hunt and I wanted the ability to get out and go frequently. So I put in for areas close to home. Um, so I, you know, if I want to do an afternoon hunt, the potential is there. I could, um, versus having to plan, you know, like you guys know, you know, planning a 10 day hunt isn't always the easiest thing to do Mm -hmm. and fit into your schedule. Um, in fact, all of my hunts this year, I think my longest trip out was, four or five days. Um, but you know, I could park at the trailhead an hour from my house and be hiking. Um, so I put in for our Spanish peaks unit down here, South of Bozeman. Um, it was nice knowing that this time of year, those sheep come down low and they rut typically pretty low depending on the weather. Um, so it was, you know, that was also in the back of my mind is that if I wasn't successful early in the season up high in the peaks that, that, that option would potentially still be there, you know, around Thanksgiving, you know, the end of the season. And we have a long season started September 1st and went through the Thanksgiving weekend. Um, first two weeks are archery season only. And, and, um, which we went up and we got close, but, um, you know, certainly not, at least I didn't find it easy to sneak too close to a, a ram at 10,000 feet in the cliffs with my bow. Um, and it was an interesting, uh, dilemma here in Bozeman this year, Labor Day weekend, there was a big fire outside of Bozeman in the Bridgers, which is a pretty popular recreation area. Um, Bozeman itself is got such a highly outdoor centric population that, you know, the majority of Bozeman, especially with, in the COVID area is outside on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the fire burning, closing down an entire mountain range, it seemed like they all went south. Well, one of the closest trailheads to Bozeman, if you head south, was the area I was hunting. So I was backpacked in seven miles and camped at a lake that I'd been to a couple times and never seen a person at. 
and opening weekend of sheep season with my bow and we set up a tent and there was another there's two other camps at the lake and there was sheep like within 300 yards of camp down below the cliffs and you know it's the night before opening day we thought it was going to be just kind of a you know and one of them was a really good ram so we thought you know we had our we had pretty good chances to put a sneak on them there in stockable positions and as that night went on groups more groups of campers kept coming in um and eventually you know people were i think camped on top of each other at the lake and over that weekend we saw 40 people at the lake wow and you know dogs and groups of college kids hooting and hollering and the following you know opening morning those sheep were in a stockable position we got to within about 80 yards of them and and you know blew that stock and they moved up into the cliffs and stayed in a spot that was pretty pretty hazardous to even try and get to and with the amount of noise down at the lake they stayed there for like the next three weeks uh, we'd go up every weekend and they'd be camped out you know in or around the same area um, you'd have rams coming and going but you know there was a couple groups that we would see and we could pick out individual rams and they were there um, pretty much for three weeks but just the amount of people um, that opening weekend when that fire was going on in the bridgers we saw 40 people at the lake and then on the hike out we um, crossed paths with at least another 40 people just day hiking um, into that area um, which I'm I'm sure caused those sheep to stay up high and is you know, in years past, which is part of the reason I picked that area, I had heard that those sheep would stay, stay in and around the chutes around the lake and come up and down and, you know, occasionally even be drinking out of the lake in the morning. Um, but with the amount of people, we certainly did not experience that. That's, that's wild. Just thinking of like hiking in and out of there for you and then running into that many people. And I know Bozeman obviously has a, a large hunting presence clearly um but did you get a lot of like looks of what exactly are you hunting up here or like have any encounters like that um yeah we definitely got a few i was expecting you know a couple negative interactions that didn't happen you know you had a couple that asked if we'd caught any deer yet right Um, yeah (laughs) you know just people that didn't know um ran into one other sheep hunter um it was actually opening weekend of rifle season he was up there with his bow he wanted to I think savor the the good weather and the opportunity to hunt with his bow. Um, otherwise, I never saw any other sheep hunters. I had a friend that drew a goat tag in the same area. His wife actually drew a goat tag, and they were we were able to share kind of scouting intel and different things, and and we bumped into them up there once or twice. Um, but yeah, you know, for the most part, people were were really good. Um, it, it just, there was one night, you know, we spent the night up there and it sounded, there was a group of college kids that came in and you could, they were up till probably two or three in the morning around a bonfire screaming, <laughs> hollering, and our dogs were chasing each other around. And we had a group of trail runners that came in one day and like 15 of them were doing a 40 mile loop and they all stopped at the lake to skinny dip and rinse off and um you know decent change of scenery but at the same time (laughs) 
makes it hard to do a lot of hunting and <laughs> close to camp. Um, but no, it was good. Um, went up there, uh, one weekend, uh, in rifle season by myself and, um, made the mistake of relying on the weatherman to tell me how to dress. Um, kind of was expecting highs in the low seventies and, you know, it wasn't supposed to get below about 30 and at night and got up in there and snow was really starting to fall. The, I was hearing trees crash down all around me because of the wind was so high and I ended up sitting in my tent for a couple hours eating dinner and you know, that freezing wet rain hitting mm-hmm. the tent, starting to pool up under my tent and, um, through my inreach, I was, talked to Jen and she said the weather report had changed and they're expecting like 12 inches of snow and red flag wind warnings. And I hadn't uh, gone in as prepared as I probably should have decided during the break in the weather, I would bail. And so I walked in the, the seven miles, did a little bit of a hunt in the rain and then backpacked out the same night in the dark. And I was glad I did looking at the peaks the next morning. They got a significant amount of snow. Yeah. Um, was it tough to make that call or did you just, yeah, you just it, flat out knew you weren't prepared and it was just the smart thing to do and it was easy to make that decision? I would say, no, it was pretty tough in that, you know, I, I was kicking myself for not being prepared. I was second guessing myself thinking, that's probably not going to be that bad. I'm just being a, being a mm-hmm. wiener. Um, but looking back on it, I think I made the right decision that I know I wasn't, I would have survived, but it certainly wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have been the, uh, a fun hunt. Um, and being in there by myself, you know, it was yeah. probably not the best decision to try and push through it, um, mm-hmm. especially up on those cliffs with the snow. Um, and it turned out when I went in the following weekend that had changed the sheep behavior for sure. And they, they didn't even come back in there for a while till that, um, that weather settled down again. Um, hmm. I think it would have been a kind of an exercise in futility to be walking around in the freezing my toes yeah. off while I did. You hmm. think they just pushed lower with that storm? Yeah, I'm not sure where they went. I think they dropped into a different basin. Um, there is a basin up there that's really hard to get to. There's no trails in or out of, um, you have to, go up and around or in a bushwhack through, you know, miles of downfall and cliff faces and, um, try and get into it. And I've, I've been in there once before in the summertime fishing and it was one of those spots that I told myself that unless the fishing's incredible, I was never going back and <laughs> the fishing wasn't that good. So I've not been back. Um, so yeah, backing up, how fun, I mean, I know that you mentioned you specifically chose this cause it was close and it sounds like you had some familiarity with the area, but how familiar were you with the area even before you drew the tag? Cause I know you were out scouting clearly, um, before the season started, but did you know, or did you feel like when you found out you drew the tag, you had a good feel for what you were getting into from a terrain perspective? I felt like, um, I guess in both ways, I hadn't been the specific lake I ended up camping at and where I ended up, you know, hunting the basin I ended up hunting most of, I hadn't actually spent much time in. I had been in and around it on summer backpacking trips a number of times. Um, and like I said, you know, backpack fishing, 
um, in the summer, but really hadn't spent a whole lot of time there. And, and other than seeing those sheep down low late in the winter, and, you know, sometimes they'll come down and lick the salt off the highway late winter. Um, I really hadn't ever seen sheep up there, but I was able to kind of pull off of the, the folks around me who, you know, it, it seemed like every so often I'd bump into people who either had the tag previously or knew somebody who had the tag or hunted with somebody who had the tag. Um, and so I was able to draw in a lot of their experience. And, you know, one of the specific tips I was given by a couple of people was, you know, here's where I would camp and you can spend your daytime fishing and you can, you know, really just kind of glass up into the chutes around this basin and usually find sheep. Um, and that's what ended up happening. You know, the fishing was incredible and the, I don't, there wasn't a trip in there where we didn't at least see a ram. Mm. Uh, you know, some, some weren't as good and some were in areas that we just couldn't get to, um, or didn't feel safe getting to, um, once I had the rifle, you know, you were able to get into positions that you could have figured out, but trying to sneak into some of those little pockets up in the cliffs with my bow would have been a, an interesting challenge, but, um, yeah, I ended up, like I said, camped, uh, pretty much camped the same spot almost all season. It was right at seven miles. Um, and you know, pretty good climb. And I had, I guess one of the things that in March of last year, I had torn out my ACL skiing and actually had surgery scheduled for the week after I found out I drew this tag. Um, when I, I called the doctor and he's a hunter and I told him, you know, I drew this tag. Do I, can I, will I be hiking in time if I get the surgery versus will I survive without the surgery at all? Um, he said, you should be able to hike by September. And knowing that I wanted to get in shape and do some scouting, I knew that wasn't going to work out real well. Um, you know, and his warning was just as long as you're in shape and potentially wearing a brace, you should be fine in that terrain. If you're careful without the surgery. So that's what I did. Um, canceled the surgery. And that was, I guess, probably one of my, I don't feel like it limited me a lot, but it made me slow down and kind of be cautious in certain areas, knowing that, you know, I was missing an ACL and I actually never even bought a brace, but um, tried to stay in good enough shape that I didn't need it. Yeah. Did you do anything specific to kind of prehab that, you know, kind of prepare or strengthen it so you felt like you well, weren't going to have a weakness or an issue with it? Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the gym and, you know, on, on days I had off, we were, Jen and I were hiking um, and, you know, trying to get into that country. Um, but yeah, really just a lot of quad work and trying to strengthen strengthen the the muscles in my legs around the knee so that i mm-hmm. um it would you know help stabilize itself and wouldn't have to worry about it and and i'd say it whatever i did seemed to work um talked to a couple of the guys at the the gym i get we have urban fitness a gym right next to our shop so literally it it shares a wall if they're Part of the reason I didn't do this podcast there is because if they're bouncing wall balls <laughs> off the wall, it shakes our whole shop. Um, but it, uh, you know, they, they gave me a couple of good pointers to to help 
help uh, work to strengthen that, doing a lot of stabilization work on the BOSU balls and, and like I said, specific to quad training, um, front squats and different things to really focus the the workouts there and that it really seemed to help. In fact, I canceled the surgery altogether so far and I'm trying to decide whether I should even have it. Really? The, uh, apparently most people recommend that ACL surgery, you know, after a certain age, it's really probably not worth doing as long as you stay in shape. Hmm. But the caveat to that is most people who are older aren't spending a whole lot of time doing the kind of things that I'm still doing. So, um, I'm only 44 and I still want to ski and hike and hopefully draw some more of these tags in the future. So I'll probably end up scheduling it for the winter and find a reason to sit on the couch and have a beer for a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, that'll be good. Yeah. That's a good reason for sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we kind of hopped out of the the hunt progressing there for a minute. So diving back in, um, you know, archery season passes, you head in there, sounds like early in rifle season, have that bad storm, end up packing out. Uh, where does the story of the hunt itself pick up from there? Um, yeah, so like I said, I went in, I probably spent a total in there of 10 or 12 days hunting. Um, you know, I had a couple trips by myself. And in fact, the the, the last trip, it would have been the first weekend in October. I was by myself, um, went in there, was able to spot some rams up in a kind of a different area than we'd been hunting, but, you know, I was able to see it from the same basin and um, picked my way up there that, that morning. And it was an interesting spot in that the only reason I even spotted those rams in there, like I said, it was in a different spot than I'd been, than we'd been seeing them. The only reason I, I picked up a couple rams was they were with a goat. Um, so that white goat stood out and I was looking at them and, you know, had been paying attention to the goats anyway, because of my buddy's wife who had the goat tag in there and, you know, looking at, at that goat realized there was some sheep with it and <clears throat> got up the next morning, climbed a little glass and knob where I could see that they were still there in the same spot. They were all still together. Um, they'd been moving in and out of the timber, but into a, 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 a slide area and I picked my way up there that morning, um, right after first light and, and got up, um, into the slide, sat down and, you know, I was trying to document the hunt as I could, you know, just with my cell phone and doing little videos and taking pictures and, and sat down and, and took a little video and knew that I was going to kind of move into a final position where I was going to sit and hope that these, these sheep came out and, um, got on a puffy coat cause the sun hadn't hit it yet and took about another 10 steps. And that goat was 15 yards from me. Um, and kind of freaked me out in that I knew those sheep had been with the goat. So kind of readied myself and expected, those sheep to pop out any second sat there for about an hour till my legs went to sleep and that goat fed at 15 yards and eventually realized the sheep weren't there. So started kind of taking some video with the goat and taking pictures and, um, realized I needed to kind of move to a better spot anyway. And, um, gently shooed the goat away and, 
ended up sitting there for you know four or five hours you know until the afternoon sun hit me and you know typical sit and wait hunting scenario mm-hmm. um, and you know luckily for me the that the sheep I ended up shooting kind of fed out right where I hoped he would and was able to get a kind of had to move a little bit I was using a ultralight tripod that um from spartan precision mm-hmm. um, and certainly able to help me get a good good rest up there in that uneven terrain and um i wasn't the i, I kind of tend to go pretty ultralight um and not carry more than i need to but having that that tripod let me glass and and shoot off of it all at one time and um certainly critical in helping me get the shot up there. Um, and it, you know, fed right out right where I hoped it would. It was only about a 98 yard shot ballistically, but you know, um, I don't know what the actual true distance would have been, but a pretty steep angle down. And, uh, that sheep fed right out, had, had time to kind of settle myself down while he fed past some other rocks that were, were, um, covering him up, you know, here and there. And I shot and as I jacked another round in, I, I watched him roll. I saw his feet in the air and then he kind of rolled out of sight. Like I said, it was on a steep hill and I was able to gather all my stuff up, but I never saw him again. I didn't know if he rolled and stopped, if he rolled and ran into the trees or kept rolling. Um, Cause there was a cliff bend below him, um, not right below him, but close enough that if he took a, a long enough run that it could be trouble and picked my way down through the rocks and, and initially did not find any blood where, where I thought he was, um, or thought it where he should be, um, started kind of zigzagging the obvious trails you know, above these cliff bands, um, hoping to pick up some blood somewhere and, um, ended up finding an area that, there weren't necessarily tracks, but it looked like rolled rocks and, um, certainly the ground was disturbed. Um, and after I went down the hill, probably 30, 40 yards, I ended up finding some blood finally. And, and occasionally I'd find a, a track that looked like he had been running downhill and likely, um, occasionally stumbling down the hill. Um, I, I, I feel like he was probably, rolling and would get to his feet and then roll again. And, um, cause there'd be, you know, 10, 15 yards of rock blown out and then a track and then 10 more yards of rock blown out and then a track. And he ended up going right down this little chute between these cliff bands, um, and wedged himself under a big log, uh, against a root ball down at the bottom, kind of where you'd see the avalanche run out. And, that's where he was. He, you know, he, he died right there and, and on probably a 65, 70 degree slope wedged under a log and three o'clock in the afternoon sun. And I was there by myself trying to figure out how I was going to move him and cape him and quarter him and whether or not I'd have to climb up out of that chute or if I could get out the bottom. So it was kind of a, a moment of, like what do i do now do i yeah do i i couldn't move him by myself um 
I could just kind of slide his front quarter or front end around a little bit. Um, but there's no way I could get him to a flat spot. There's no way I could really get him anywhere. Um, and so it was kind of one of those jobs where I started, started caping and quartering piece by piece just to lighten him up so I could actually pull him out from to where I could get to the rest of him. Um, you know, legs were tangled up in, in this root ball. Every time I'd set a knife down, it would slide down the hill. Uh, it, it was, uh, and I ended up running out of water up there. So at one point as I was pulling the, pulling the cape back, trying to, trying to skin all my fingers on one hand cramped up and I couldn't straighten them. And I'd be pushing on my fingers, trying to get my, my hand to open up and, and they'd spring back to that locked position in. Um, and interesting battle you have with yourself, you know, I'm laying there, I got all the quarters off and kind of last step trying to get the, the head loose and felt like I didn't have the strength anymore to, to twist and pull and couldn't find the joint I needed to hit. And I knew I, by then I had in reached, um, Rick, he was coming in the next morning to, to help, um, help pack out. And, you know, he's like, I'll meet you at the lake. I'll take pictures there. And, um, you know, it'll be great. And I honestly, there was a, a period there where I'm like, well, I'm just going to have to leave, leave this here and wait for him to come up in the morning. And that was probably six hours later. I didn't get done quartering until almost 11 at night. Um, that's, that's slow going. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and it was mostly the terrain, the the quartering, right. Yeah. You know, it it just, it was kind of a weird position. You're straddling over this down log and trying to, you know, it's all you could do to pull. I didn't realize the weight of just the sheep's head, um, having never, you know, hunted sheep before, um, you know, the, I ended up, my wife had told me she wanted a full body mount and very quickly realized that wasn't going to happen where I was, at least not without help. Um, I just couldn't get it caped. Um, so, you know, I ended up doing the, caped him from the back, probably his hips forward. Um, and that cape, um, with the head, I, I never did weigh it, but had to have been 60, 70 pounds by itself. Um, wow. You know, just yeah, had the full front legs and cape and head. Yeah. Uh, maybe not that much. Maybe it just felt that heavy. I'm tired. And that's great. Yeah, it certainly felt felt rough. And then, you know, by the end, just being out of water and, and trying to hike out in the dark through this, you know, cliffy terrain and, trying not to get cliffed out myself. Um, and it, I was lucky in that early on, it was pretty dark. You know, I was following my GPS trying to find the trail. Um, I knew if I'd gone straight down one of these avalanche chutes, I would eventually connect with the trail. But I also remember looking up those chutes and that I'm sure you guys have been in those areas where the, the avalanche run out and it's just filled with dead trees and looks like, you know, toothpicks stacked up. Um, and it's, 
basically impossible to get through. Um, just mangle of dead trees and, and stumps and rocks. And so I tried to side hill to a spot where I knew the trail kind of switched back up. Um, and so I ended up kind of side hilling across to that to stay out of these avalanche uh, runouts. And um, turns out the trail that existed on the GPS map had been rerouted at some point. Um, and I ended up, you know, doing a lot of circles in the dark, trying to figure out if I crossed the trail in the dark and, you know, according to my, my track and the trail, I'd crossed the trail like 10 times at one point, but, um, ended up finally coming across it, got back to camp right around midnight. Of course, right about then the full moon came out and I could see really well, but, yeah, uh, yeah, I made for a a short night and a lot of down as much water as I could, but I ended up, you know, waking up numerous times as my legs would cramp up in different positions. And, um, I just let myself get dehydrated to the point that it made, made for a troublesome night. But that night I ended up just packing out the head and, and Cape hung the, hung the quarters in the, in the trees, which surprised me how small the sheep quarters were. Mm. Um, I, you know, a big barrel chested animal, um, almost felt to me like you were opening up a, a small elk, but you pull these quarters off and they're like small deer sized and, you know, could hang them in a tree with one hand. Um, and so, you know, it's just surprising for me to realize the work that went into that and having the the terrain and, and lack of water play a role in, in, uh, making it more difficult was, mm-hmm. uh, was, a interesting, uh, interesting process. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it worked out great in the morning. They came in and take some, took some great photos and he brought another buddy of mine, uh, Brad and his son, um, came in and met us and, you know, walked up and of course in the light, the, the trip to get the sheep out, or the quarters out was felt like a walk in the park. Um, in the dark, it wasn't so easy, but, um, everything seems, seems easier in the light and in the morning after a good night's sleep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like, you know, after the shot, you see the ram disappear, you're working your way down to him. You're looking for blood, you know, all your thoughts are obviously, uh, going in a bunch of directions there. And then when you do see him, you realize what a situation it's in and then it's time to get to work and figuring all that out. Like there's so much going on in those moments after the shot that to me, it sounds like there wasn't really time to like actually comprehend what just happened. Right. Like you filling this special tag. Uh, when did that really hit for you? Um, probably <clears throat> that next morning after I, I had somebody in there for me, hunting is a, like I said, I'm not a trophy hunter. I, I enjoy being out, but for me, it's a, I don't know. I, it's a social event for me. Um, I love being out with people and enjoying the time outside. And, you know, there's something to me that, you know, when somebody gets something down, I, I have just as much fun when somebody else knocks something down as when, when I do, um, you know, the high fives and the camaraderie and the, um, 
there's just something about it. So yeah, you're exactly right. And that, you know, the knocked him down. I remember I set up trying to take a couple pictures there, but knew, you know, by then it's three in the afternoon and the afternoon sun is beating down on me. And all I could think of is I have got to get this thing uh, into the shade and, and in a position where nothing's going to spoil. And, and, you know, I had hoped to not be sitting up there in the dark. Um, it's definitely grizzly country, although luckily up there I had not seen a, actually I don't think I saw any sign in that area, but you know, it's on your mind when you're up there by yourself and expecting to be working on this thing after dark that, um, it was a worry. Um, I would say, yeah, that the next morning, once people came in, um, and I'd had enough water in me, I remember drinking, it felt like a gallon of water before bed. And then another gallon after I got up and was able to sit there and kind of reflect by myself and watch the sun come up and have a cup of coffee and realize that, um, yeah, I'd, that what I'd been putting in for, for this long and finally, um, come true. And, and, you know, certainly not the biggest Ram out there, but not one that I would complain about at all. He's, he's a, for that unit, especially he's a, one of the bigger Rams to come out of that unit in a while. And, um, I wouldn't say one of the bigger in the unit, but you know, definitely one of the, he was a good Ram for that unit and I am not disappointed in the least. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, it's what you said. It's when you get that tag, it's everything that goes into it. It's all the preseason scouting, the call it the quote unquote excuse <laughs> to spend that much time in the country. And it's not, it's not just the animal. It's the whole experience culminating. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And in that country, you know, it's like I said, I'd wanted a, a mountain hunt. I wanted a, a true sheep hunt in the mountains and, in Montana, at least, that's probably one of the better areas to get that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is that a once in a lifetime, like it is in Idaho, or can you draw that again? No, I have to um, wait seven years before I can even apply. Uh, okay, but then once that seven years is up, those you know, I could start applying again, and you know, you could draw it the first year, or you can start accruing points and gotcha. I'll draw it again when I'm eighty. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I'll wait till they come to the highway, though. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't follow the whole story, Paul, and I'm not sure if there how much of a story there is to this, but I just remember seeing at some point like someone was questioning something about your photos or the hunt or something, and you had to like you didn't have to. I don't say have to. You posted a photo that was basically validating whatever was in question like what was this it's goofy to me that there's always like drama on stuff but like what's the backstory there that's funny yeah it's the i think actually first light reposted my photo <clears throat> um and i had gotten a new phone right before this uh hunt and it's just the iphone 11 and they have that portrait mode mm-hmm. um which um you know puts everything in focus and you know the person in focus and the background is blurred um and it uh, it was probably my favorite photo of the whole hunt and it's you know my buddy took it um with the lake in the background and the mountains in the background and you know by then of course the sheep is caped out and we're sitting at the 
on the beach at the lake and um you know holding the sheep head in front of me and it's heavy enough i'm certainly not holding it out far in front of me um but yeah some of the comments on the the first light page were interesting and the you know oh you're faking it and it's all photoshopped and sheep don't really get that big and um (laughs) and you know looking at it um after the fact i'm sure that portrait mode has some it's almost like yeah it's it's very enhanced fisheye lens kind of um uh, i'm not exactly sure what they do but you know it was certainly not a faked photo um so i posted on my own personal instagram page that it you know it was a photo that rick had took of brad taking the photo um with the phone and yeah um you know i again the the one that got posted by first light is probably my favorite picture of the whole hunt and he makes you know it's it's a well composed photo it makes him look look big but there's certainly no doctoring going on there yeah uh i don't get how people have the time to like sit around and create stuff like that <laughs> like yeah. it's just goofy hey, to one, me. Of, one of my biggest uh, pet peeves about social media and uh, the there's always somebody who'll find a reason to complain about something or or yeah. you know try and make tear somebody else down right <laughs> Well, that's awesome, man. It's cool to hear the story behind, uh, you know, I was kind of following via social media, like seeing everything from your preseason scouting to some of the hunts and seeing it come together. So it's it's cool to get on here and hear about that. And uh, honestly, just some of that background and context on FHF as well. Um, just to, I'm sure we could sit here and chat for two more hours, but I don't want to keep you all day. Um, what's, what's coming down the pipeline with FHF? Some guys might be wondering, some guys may have even heard about like, transitions with uh fhf and meat eater so share what you want about that and then just maybe just tell us what's coming in the future what you can tell us anyway (laughs) Um, yeah well um it's interesting in that um (coughs) excuse me um the the media whole meat eater transition has been an interesting process in that like i uh we talked about prior to i think before you were recording that you know the goal there is to really take a lot of the the load off the back end the business side and and give me the resources to kind of scale production uh to a level where we can get stuff in stock um dial in production um and so for the most part day-to-day operations here haven't changed a whole lot in the with respect to you know how we run the company um we've just been able to offload a lot of those those back duties um but at the same time, we've noticed an increase in volume and sales and, and emails and, you know, customers. And so, you know, I can say we're probably busier than we've ever been, even though we're, we're short some of those, some of those duties. Um, and because it's still a transition period, but I'd say really, you know, we certainly, we always have new stuff we're working on. Um, I won't probably go into too much detail about the new stuff coming out just yet until we can dial in production there. Um, but I would say as we move forward into 21, you know, our biggest goal is to have the the stuff we that we have now actually in stock. We will kind of um, 
dial in some of the stuff that we've got going um, currently and, you know, be able to kind of transition the product line into uh, a more, um, I don't know, dialed in, I guess, uh, I don't know, better way to say it, where we're using different production companies to make sure um, our quality from all of them is the same and that the, the same products are coming out from both companies. Um, and then um, w- with that day-to-day operation stuff being taken off of my plate, uh, we will be able to dive uh, much better into the design and development so that we can um, can get the new stuff coming out um, at a faster rate and a better level than we were able to do before. Um, and again, with the with the scope and being able to scale, uh, you know, with their backing and having, you know, we're able to pull from the business experience from both First Light and Meat Eater um, and use their expertise to help us uh, execute on some of these things. Um, we're really hopeful that, you know, we can expand the line, um, keep the same quality and if not increase the quality as we go and, and get new products out at a rate uh, much faster than we were able to do before. Yeah. Cool. Well, it'll be, uh, it'll be good, man. I'm excited to keep following along, keep seeing what's coming both on the product side as well as your hunts. And, uh, thanks for taking the time. I'm sure FHFgear.com uh, is the website, right? If you guys want to go check stuff out or maybe connect with the brand. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I feel remiss in not, uh, not mentioning the, the XO pack I used on that whole hunt. Uh, <laughs> so yeah hopefully it treated you well (laughs) it did yeah it was fantastic um i've used every brand out there and and uh it's at least for my body type most comfortable pack i've used so i i certainly appreciate it yeah good to hear man love to hear it yeah cool well paul thanks for the time uh really do appreciate it and uh listeners as you heard you can go check out fhfgear.com to check out the brand and the products and learn more all right thanks for having me guys you bet. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one. As you heard, you can go check out fhfgear.com to see more of their products. And again, to learn more about this podcast, you can go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. I appreciate you guys tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.